Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 17 of the Regato Podcast, a show featuring academics, authors, artists, and people who challenge the way we think and how to take action. Today, we're honored to learn from award-winning artist and author Michael Card about his latest book entitled The Nazarene, 40 Devotions on the Lyrical Life of Jesus, published by InterVarsity Press. Michael has been studying, meditating, and writing about the life of Christ as both a musician and author for over 35 years. And his latest book takes us on a poetic and meditative journey through important gospel stories to help connect our hearts and minds to the life of Christ. He also draws us into stories of Jesus through lyrical songs, devotional readings, and historical analysis of the gospels. In today's show, Michael Card talks with us about simmering on scripture and ways to thoughtfully analyze and understand the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He also talks with us about why he's been focused on studying the gospels and how he has used music and his theological writings to connect others to Jesus. Michael also shares how we can become better readers and students of the Bible. Here's our conversation. Michael, I wanted to ask you, uh, during this COVID-19 season, have you found it to be a period of more creativity, less creativity, or just kind of the same? Uh, that's a great question. I don't, I don't know if I've, cre- I haven't produced anything, so it hasn't been creative in that sense. I think it's, for me, it's, it's been more of a time of kind of simmering. I think part of that creative, you know, life is that you do spend times, um, yeah, simmering. And I, I think what I've done, I've, I've, I've been a interim teacher at a local church, which means on Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings, I've had to teach. And I've, so I've, I've spent my week preparing to do that. Wow. And not getting my work done that I was working on before. But what, what's happened is in the meantime, the work I was, what I was working on before, as I think about it all the time, it's on my mind all the time. So it's kind of simmering. I like that. But a lot of like just meditation and just reflection yeah. right now. Yeah. And it's not, it's not really directed. I'm not writing anything down, but it's just, I'm working on a book on the details of life of Jesus. And I have to think about it all the time. Oh. Just always on, it's always on my, on the, on the sort of back burner. And, um, Every now and then I'll have a new idea and I'll jot it down someplace safe. But uh, but by and large, I'm just sort of simmering, simmering with this. I'm curious about your um, like that simmering process. Do you because some people like to go on long walks. Some might want to strum a guitar to help them meditate. I'm curious about your process. What's what's simmering like for you? I, I don't think I have a specific process. It's just a matter of. You take it with you everywhere you go. It's just, it's always, it's, it's something that you become preoccupied with. Um, I had, uh, years ago, I was in, I was in, uh, Jerusalem and, uh, there's a, a, a friend who is a rabbi who's Orthodox, very open to Christians. He talks to our group every time we bring groups to Israel. And we were talking about Jesus and, uh, I was trying to impress him with my knowledge of Judaism, which is kind of a stupid thing to do with a rabbi. Trying to impress a, a rabbi with your knowledge of Judaism. <laughs> but, uh, but one of the things I said was, I said, you know, according to John, Jesus goes to Jerusalem at least three times a year for the Shalash game, the three big feasts of, of Judaism. And this rabbi says, but you, did you, do you know what that means? 
I said, yeah. why don't you tell me? He said, well, what, one, one thing that means is that Jesus spends three months out of every year walking back and forth to Jerusalem. Oh, wow. Ten days down. Yeah, 10 days down, 10 days, 10 days there and 10 days back. And then John, he goes four, sometimes four times a year. And um, and so what I, I was introduced to this idea of asking what a fact means or asking what a detail means. And that's that's what I've been working on for last several months is all, what are what are all the details of the life of Jesus that we can know? How many languages does he speak? That sort of thing. And how many what what, what, de, what are the details of his life? And and what does that mean? So, for example, we know he speaks Hebrew. Obviously, he speaks Hebrew. But what does that mean? What's that? What that means is that Jesus thinks in verbs. Hebrew is a verbal is based on verbs. Our language is based on nouns. We think in nouns. Jesus thinks in verbs. Now, mm. I have I don't have any I don't have any cool ideas for that yet. But that's <laughs> the kind of thing I'm constantly thinking mm. about. You know, okay, what does it mean to think in verbs? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting, like uh, studying different languages. I remember in school when I was studying Latin, how the verb comes at the end of a sentence. And so oh. I, remember, I remember being in class where, like, you're excited to hear the end of the sentence because you don't know what's happening until the end. Interesting. So is Latin verbal or nouns? Is it? Uh, that's a good question. I'm not I'm not quite sure, but usually the nouns were at the beginning and the Latin, okay. would, the verb would come at the end. And so. Interesting. Yeah, kind of the excitement was like waiting till the end to know what happened because you're kind of hearing like oh, the nouns. Cool. Yeah, I've, ne I've never heard that. That's very interesting. Yeah. One of, one of the things I read that got me onto this was uh, I was reading about how English is a noun based language. And one of the points they made was our whole educational system is learning the names of things. Mm. Right. That's what you go mm -hmm. to school. And, and when you go to a doctor, even if it's cancer. You feel this real relief when you know the name of what's wrong with you. Now, someone who thinks in Hebrew doesn't think that way. They want a verb. The, the answer for them, they're looking for a verb. What do I do? And uh, and what I want to do, uh, Mike, is take the time to really look through all the sayings of Jesus and see how, see if that plays out. But I haven't done that yet. That's that's so fascinating. Um, yeah. And I, I remember I was looking at your bio and. I noticed that very early on, you got your bachelor's degree and master's degree in studying theology and scripture. So, so pretty much, and, and obviously you've been composing music and writing books for over 35 years. So you have been like saturated in scripture, thinking about it for such a long period of time. What, and, and lately you've been very much focused on the gospels, like both of the music and your writing. And I'm kind of curious, like, over these last, whatever, uh, six to ten years, just focused on the Gospels. And I feel like for me, my problem, sometimes I skip them. I'm like, oh, I know that story. I've read that story. It's there four times. You have been, like, kind of simmering with the Gospels for a long period of time. And I'm curious, like, how your reading has kind of evolved as you read the Gospels now. How has your view of the Gospels changed? Yeah. Well, I realized a long time ago I went to a Presbyterian church for a long time. And, and American Christianity is basically Pauline. The average American Christian knows a lot more about Paul than they do about Jesus. And I can remember doing the Jesus movement because I was, I was young, but I was part of that movement. I was a teenager when that was going on. Um, 
and some of the the, the real kind of uh, lunatic fringe of that movement were or Jesus only people. I don't know if you know remember there was a I remember that. Yes, I remember that. Yeah. And of course they're they're take obviously they're taking that way too far and they they get kind of missed the point. But uh and back to your question, when when uh I look at the gospels, uh, I I see there's this source. Again we think we know what they say. Um which which ends up we really don't listen to them for that reason. Um, I, my my wife is here in the background someplace. You may hear her shout if I, what I'm about to say. But, um, when when I talk when I talk to my wife, sometimes I think I know what she's going to say. Right? I've known her thirty some odd years, and when you're you're listening to someone and you think you know what they're going to say, you're not really listening. Well, I do the same thing with the New Testament because I know it, you know, especially NIV. If I read a verse, I pretty well know what the next verse is going to say. And that's not a very good way to listen. Like I know it's what it's going to say. And so I think that's one that's one case for a fresh. Uh, uh, like a, um, I help with the CSB translation and it's it sort of stumbles along in a different way. NIV is uh, one of their presuppositions was to make the most readable, and NIV is very readable. CSB is not in many in in many places is not as readable. It doesn't flow because the text doesn't always flow. But what I find is that I listen differently because I don't know what it's going to say. Mm. So that's and that, so that for me is one of the big things about listening to the what the gospels represent uh, for me now. They represent sort of a fresh, this fresh information. That's not a very good word. This fresh body of, you know, whatever that I think I knew, but I don't really know at all. You know, it's, you know, and I, I think it is, it's a lot like your spouse. Also, you'll see an, you'll see an aspect of your spouse and you think, I don't really know this person. You know, this, this is a whole new part of the person I never saw before or something like that. I think the Gospels are like that. I think we're sort of wed to them in that sort of way. And I love your advice about like choosing a different Bible translation that's going to give those texts a different way to look at them that might surprise you. Because you're right. Like that's my problem sometimes when I do read the Gospel accounts. Like, oh, I know that I already know this story. I've read this, heard this preached many times. I already know this. And it, you're right. It's like such a problem because you're right. We're not listening anymore. That is such a good illustration. But I do that all well, the, the time. Message, when the message came, when Gene Peterson's uh, message came out, mm. and people called it a paraphrase, but it wasn't really a paraphrase. It was just a very creative translation. Um, you know, of course, some people hated it for that reason, uh, because it, was, it wasn't what they were used to hearing. Mm. But what he did, because he'd read Hebrew and Greek his entire adult life. I mean, he was very, he was brilliant. And... Um, and 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 took some real some real chances. I mean, there's some pretty daring choices that he made with some of his translations. But that was one of the things that the message did. It was it was something that made you realize, you know, I don't know this as well as I thought I did. And what did, what advice do you have for those of us who do struggle um, when reading the Gospels because we're not listening? We we feel like we know that story. Let's let's move on. I like your advice about looking at different translations and 
things like the message, which can totally enhance and offer a different point of view on those texts. But what are some other things that we can do to get more out of the Gospels when we maybe feel a little bit either stuck or just need a little bit more uh, encouragement? Well, I think there's a number of things you can do. I think the, one of the easiest things you can do is read the whole thing at one one time. We rarely do that. Uh, I mean, you could read the Gospel of Luke in two or three hours, probably pretty easily. And when you do that, you see a, the flow of the whole, as opposed to reading one chapter, which is how we usually do it, or one you know, one parable of Jesus or something. You read a whole book, and you you'll see things that you've never seen before. Uh, you'll see things repeat. You'll see structure that you've never seen before. Uh, so I think that that's one one helpful thing to do. I think another helpful thing to do is to take um, the author's voice seriously. Um, you know, we you know, God, that's John, that's Mark, that's Luke, whatever. Uh, but with the exception of Matthew, we actually know a lot about who these people were. I mean, Mark, we know that Mark is a disciple of Peter and that he's probably writing Peter's testimony down. And and so when I read Mark, I listen for Peter because I know something about mm -hmm. him. Uh, Luke is a companion of Paul. And so when I listen to Luke, sometimes I'm listening for that Pauline sort of university of the, of the gospel and sort of the language that Paul tends to opt towards. You hear those things sometimes when you read Luke. John, especially John, you know, you, you take seriously the voice of John, who is the last living disciple of Jesus. When you read John, you're reading the last. I mean, Peter's been dead for 30 years when John writes John. And uh, and so that that can be another really fruitful, really helpful way to listen to when you're listening to a gospel is to take their voice seriously, because they all have unique vocabulary. They all have things that they're interested in. And this is not complicated stuff to get. This is not hard. Um, so that's another thing. And then I guess that the, uh, the, I mean, there are other kind of detail with the final, final thing that I think really helps. And I learned this from studying Paul's letters. Uh, one of the most helpful things you can do in reading Paul is understand the life situation of each letter. What's happening in Thessalonica? What's happening in uh, you know, Corinth, Corinth or whatever. And, uh, with the exception really of Luke, we have a pretty good idea of the life situation of the gospels. We know that Mark was written in the context of, uh, persecution, that the church was, you know, for the first time was being persecuted. They were being accused for the, uh, of being accused of being a part of the burning of Rome. And, um, and, and so they're suffering for that. And when you, when you realize that, you read Mark, you read that Mark is, is one of the things that Mark wants to do is to show them that Jesus has already suffered everything they're going to suffer. So, you you know, you look for what's unique in Mark. So on, only Mark tells us that at one point Jesus' family thinks he's crazy. They think he's out of his mind. That's only in Mark. Mm. So why do you think that only Mark tells you that? Well, I think it's because of the life situation of Mark. And his first readers are being told, you're out of your mind for being a follower of Jesus. You're crazy, right? And so Mark wants them to know that they're not going to suffer anything that Jesus hasn't already suffered. Uh, that the other, the other good example in Mark is, uh, the, the, uh, temptation in the wilderness. 
Mark is clearly not interested in that story. There's no detail in the story he gives whatsoever. He, there's no threefold temptation, turn the stones into bread, leap off the temple. None of that. He, he tells the whole story in two verses. <laughs> but the one thing, one thing Mark says is when Jesus was in the wilderness, he was with the wild beasts. That's the one thing he says. But why does only Mark say that? What is happening to his first readers? They're being thrown to wild beasts in the, in the, in the arena. And Mark wants them to know they'll never suffer anything Jesus hasn't suffered. So that's an example of when you're engaging and listening to the Gospels, the life situation can really make it interesting. Matthew is writing to Jews who are being kicked out of the synagogue. So when you read Matthew, you keep that in mind. Um, John is, is writing to, the, I think, the same group of churches that he writes to, the Revelation to, and they're suffering uh, all kinds of heresies and all sorts of distortions about who Jesus is. And, and John is writing to help them with that. That helps, I think. It helps me. And it's yeah. not hard. Well, I love the way you're, you're talking about them. They're like old friends, the way you, you talk about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You spent so much time reading those scriptures and studying yeah. that you can talk to, you can talk about them like that. Well, but these are all self-evident truths. I don't think they're anything. You don't have to read. You don't have to read journal articles or have a PhD. When you read these things, you you know you just ask these basic questions. Why does why does only Luke tell this story? There's got to be a reason why Luke. Why is Luke interested in you know this or Matthew? You know why is Matthew so interested in everything being the fulfillment of something? That's that he's stuck on that. And uh, and of course that's part of the perfection of Matthew because it's holy holy scripture is perfect. But um, you know Luke, why is why is Luke so interested in the gospel going out to Gentiles? Who's Luke a companion of? Paul. So that's clearly where he you know where he gets that sensitivity. And so when he interviews people, and he tells us that he wasn't an eyewitness, so he's interviewing people. Uh, one of the things that he finds interesting or that the Holy Spirit stirs in him is this interest in in, um, in the gospel going out to the Gentiles. And so right there in the beginning of Luke, what is Simeon singing? He's a light to the Gentiles. None of the other gospel writers would have been interested in that, but Luke is really interested in that. I love how, I mean, again, again, the way that you talk about these gospel writers and it just shows like how much time you spent simmering with scripture, meditating, getting to know the way that they talk about Jesus and his life and the things they mentioned, the things that they didn't mention. And you know these gospels very, very well. And I'm curious, like as you are personally kind of reading them for yourself, you have this um you have the knowledge of kind of the background of the text, who the writer is, you know the structure of the gospels very, very well. You've been focused on studying for a very long time. At the same time, as a Christian, you're also reading it devotionally, like, Lord, teach me through these texts. And I'm curious, like, how you kind of navigate between being a critical reader of the Bible and also yeah. being also wanting to get that spiritual devotional aspect to it. OK, this is going to be a complicated answer. What, what's the what's the foundational creed, if, if you want to call it that, of Judaism? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind and spirit. OK. The, the, the what the Shema teaches is basically the best way to love God is to listen to Him, right? The best way to love anybody is to listen to them, your spouse, your children, whatever. So the best way to love God is to listen to Him. And and in the list, 
it says you love them with your heart, your soul, your spirit, and your mind. So you listen not just with your heart devotionally and not just with your mind academically. You listen with everything. And and what I and this is my idea. I won't take a bullet for this, but I think it's a cool idea. Uh, the way you do that is that you engage with your imagination. Uh, I believe that the imagination integrates us. It, the, the imagination is a bridge between, I wrote a song called The Bridge about the imagination. The imagination is a bridge between your heart and mind. So that's the theory. Okay, so how do we test that theory? We go back and we look at the Bible and lo and behold, and again, I believe this. I think it's a really cool idea. What's my academic reason for believing it? I think it's a really cool idea. <laughs> I like that. That's good for me. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. But, you know, to test that theory, you go back and you look at the Bible and you, lo and behold, you discover what the Bible targets is your imagination. It's not theology. It's not a theology book. And it's not really a devotion book. There are parts of it that are very, very devotional, especially the Psalms. I get that in general, is targets your imagination, because I think God speaks imagination. He he gets our heart and our mind. But how, how do you do that? And the best example is the parables. In order to speak the imagination, uh, you demand engagement. Jesus says, um, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's his way of saying, if you don't engage with this, you're not going to get it, and I'm not going to explain it to you. That's not how it works. I mean, he explains one parable in private to the disciples. Otherwise, he, he, he with no introduction, uh, he steps up and says that a man is going down a road and fell into the hands of men, you know, men of violence. And he tells his parable. And then he ends by saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And what that does is it demands that you engage with your heart and your mind or you're not going to get it. You know, Jesus doesn't say, okay, here's point one, point two, point three, write this down mm. in your mind. And he doesn't just have, you know, warm, fuzzy devo devotional thoughts. Here's the thought for the day, you know, um, meditate on this. That's not how he teaches. He basically tells these stories or makes these very difficult statements about cutting your hand off or gouging your eye out and things like that. And you engage or not. And if you don't engage, you're not going to get it. And that's what's the greatest weakness of his teaching. It's the greatest strength of his teaching. Because clearly a lot of people won't engage. They want to be spoon-fed. Yeah. Now I'm, I'm just thinking about like the the rabbi, the Jewish teacher, like te teaching in parables that leaves you questioning, that leaves you in dialogue. Let, let's talk about this. Because alone, I'm not, I'm struggling with it alone. And it's really meant yes. to be, let's dialogue about these parables. Yeah, and you and you and I never thought of that till you said that. But you see that in the gospel too. He'll say something, and the disciples will come back later and say, "Well, what did you mean by that?" And and that's where like yeah, scripture can be. Um, at times, there's things that can be very simple, and you can take it, and it's very encouraging. Um, I think about many psalms, psalms of lament that you just identify with immediately. But then there's definitely those passages, especially those parables, where you you scratch your head, going, "Oh, I." I'm, I'm struggling with this text. And, and yeah, it does force you to engage, but like sit yeah. there and like read what other people have said about it. Listen to sermons, listen to other people dialogue. Well, and sometimes you struggle with it because you know exactly what it means. Exactly <laughs> what it means. Right? He, you know, could it, could it possibly be that he's demanding my life? Right. He wants, wait, he wants everything. 
you know, um, and, uh, and that's one of on this, this book on the details that I'm working on now. One of the lists I have in my book is what are the non-negotiables? And one mm. of the non-negotiables, you know, what are what are the things that Jesus says? Unless you do this, you can't be my disciple. I thought, you know, I need to see that in a list. And there are about Ooh. five things that he's, he says, unless you do this. And one, of course, the first one is take you can't take a uh, you got to take up your cross. And one of the other things he says is you got to leave your family. You can't be my disciple unless you leave your family. And you think that, wow, do you really mean that? Does that figure? I mean, can I spiritualize right. my way out of that? Right. And um, and I think that's his way of saying you got to love. You got to be willing to leave them. Not everyone has to leave home, but a lot of people do have to leave home. Yeah, those are those like hard sayings that you're if you're talking about those hard sayings yeah. of Jesus that that make you question like what what am I doing? They're very convicting passages that we struggle yeah. with, and they're hard because <laughs> we understand exactly what he wants. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's hard too. Is like sometimes we will interpret based on like the Jesus that we want to see, yes. right? Like that that's the struggle too, because there's the meek and mild Jesus. There is the Jesus, uh, uh, obviously the Christianity, we have lots of churches that will specify and highlight specific things about Jesus. Right. Right. And that's the kind American of the struggle Jesus. sometimes. Yeah, yeah. The American, American Jesus. Jesus. Well, I think we want Jesus to be one thing and he's not one thing. I think we want, I think a lot of times I mean, I don't I don't have language for this yet, but I want to come up with some. I think we think the answer to most questions is one thing, and I think the answer to most questions is almost never one thing. Not that there's not absolute truth and that sort of thing, but Jesus, Jesus is. Uh, I mean, I've got a book, you know, Jesus the Pharisee, it, it, you know, and it makes a very powerful case for Jesus was in many ways like the Pharisees. He taught like a Pharisee and. Mm. There were the, the the leadership in the early church was largely Pharisaic, so the Pharisees, for the most part, resonated with Jesus. Um, but he's not he's not just that. You can't reduce him to that. He's not just a great teacher. You know, a very good case can be made for the fact that he was actually a horrible teacher. <laughs> Lewis, uh, you know, Lewis said um, uh, people want to base missing a great moral teacher. Lewis says great moral teachers don't posit themselves as the answer to questions mm. i'm the way i'm the truth i'm the life i'm the bread of life he said people who say those kind of things are on the level of someone who thinks they're the fried egg right and, and uh so you know so jesus is not just one thing is he a great teacher of course he's a great teacher but in other ways apart from him being the son of god he said lots of crazy stuff <laughs> you know gouging your eyes out cutting your hand off that's nuts if, mm-hmm. if that's what he says it is uh, you know, and, and Lewis says, you know, Jesus doesn't give us the option of dimi- dismissing him as a great teacher because he's not just that. He's he's lots of things. And one of the new things, Mike, that I'm seeing that I've never seen before. And that's the wonderful thing about the Gospels in the life of Jesus. You never squeeze it dry. You always think of Jesus as the radical. He's this new radical. Right. And the Pharisees are the old guy. And that's not true at all. Jesus is the conservative, hmm. right? The Pharisees are the ones who are the, the they're breaking away and, and adding to the law. And Jesus will say to the Pharisees, what does Moses say? Or, you know, how do I inter- inter- inherit your life? The rich and ruler says, Jesus says, obey the commands. 
Mm. And, and in many ways, he is very conservative. Oh, interesting. Uh, him, tearing up, him tearing up the temple is really, a, 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 it's a radical example of his conservatism. He loves the temple so much and the fact that they've moved the marketplace into the court of the Gentiles. I mean, he is incensed by that because he's a conservative. And I have never seen him that way before. Right. Never heard that before. Well, he's, I mean, I think it's fairly self-evident. You know, go, go find out what Moses said. What did Moses say? Very conservative. But not just that. Right. So he's a radical and he's a conservative. He's a great teacher and he's kind of a lousy teacher and he's, you know, he's the son of God. He's the son of man. He's a king and he's a pauper. He's just, he's this, Elegant, wonderful. You can't pin him down. He's he not one thing. He not one thing. As you've spent time with each gospel writer, how would you say that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, like if you were to ask them individually, like who is Jesus? Do you think yeah. that they would have a different response? Absolutely. I mean, they have new. They nuance. They definitely nuance. Their response. And if you're like me, you, I was taught that, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, those are the synoptics, one eye. And, you know, I, and I was r- raised with this idea that, well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are kind of the same. And then here's John, 92% unique over here. And so John's really different. Matthew, and the more I've read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they are as different. I know they have the basic same outline, but they are as different from each other as they are from John in many ways. And, uh, no, no. So I think, no, um, uh, Mark, uh, Mark is Peter. Mark is right. Uh, Peter calls Mark my son. And, uh, all the church fathers, you know, say that basically the church comes to Mark and they say, please write down Peter's account before he dies because everyone's dying. And so the Jesus you get in Mark is the kind of the Petrine Jesus. And so what would you expect? You would expect him to be very emotional and Mark. And I've counted adjectives. I mean, I've done, I've done. My oh, wow. Uh, J- Mark, Jesus is far more emotional in the gospel of Mark than he is in any of the other gospels. Oh, and I think that's Peter. He, you know, he gets angrier in Mark than anyone else. And he is, he's more compassion. He looks at people and loves them and that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, that's Mark. Mark's Jesus is Peter. Uh, Peter's version of Jesus. Um, Matthew, I think, is Matthew's writing to Jews who are being kicked out of the synagogue. And I think what Matthew, that Matthew's Jesus is this Jesus who's helping people understand who they are because they don't know who they are anymore. So, you know, I think that's the the Jesus of Matthew. Um, You know, so, yeah, I think you can go through each one of the Gospels. And because of who they are and because of who they're writing to, um, they, they present Jesus in, from different perspectives. I mean, why would we need four, four identical gospels? That, that doesn't, that would be no good. But we have four unique perspectives on who he is. And, and of course, there's scripture, Holy Scripture, so they're perfect. But, um, things I love doing is seeing him with, him with different lights on him from different uh, points of view. You mentioned the beginning of the interview about how so much of the American church focuses on the Pauline letters, the 13 letters of Paul. And and we get so much instruction there. And I remember being, you know, in high school group as a kid and like we studied Paul, like 
Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, like those were all like very instructive, very helpful. And you see his relationship with Timothy, right? They're extremely helpful. And that's where we get a lot of our doctrine from, right? Right. Justification. And and there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, there's nothing nothing wrong wrong with that. that. Nothing wrong with that at all. Um, So have have you, I mean, have you thought about doing like a Pauline series after the Gospels? No. <laughs> no. That would be so much work. That would be so much work. I mean, um, I'll tell you who, William Lane, my, my mentor, he, he really did all that work. Oh. He can tell you the life situation of every one of Paul's letters, which really makes it come alive. Um, and so what I would do, if I did it, I would do, I would base it on what he did and, mm-hmm. you know, but, uh, I'm, I'm just not that interested in Paul. Paul is not, Paul, there's, Paul makes one reference to the historical Jesus. Uh, he refers to the Lord's Supper, right? Otherwise, I think Paul, Paul's excitement in Jesus is what I did now, Paul, I call it present reality. What Paul is excited about is the present reality of Jesus, not the Jesus, historical Jesus, but I mean, Paul had met him, right, on the road. So, um, he, you know, he, he wants, he, he knows Jesus is a present reality and, and because of that, there's just very little information about Jesus in Paul's letters. And there's not meant to be because what he's basically doing is he's solving problems. He's, he's, he's not constructing a systematic theology, which is what we try to do with Paul. He's just dealing with problems, you know. So like in one church, the women are being disruptive. And so he says, OK, women shouldn't speak in church. I don't think that I don't think he ever meant that to be all women all time in every church. I think that was advice for that one problem. And and so I think to really understand Paul and this I learned from Bill Lane, you have to do your homework and understand, Okay, there's there's a heresy in this church and he's in Ephesus. He's dealing with that heresy or there's a problem, you know, with discipline in Corinth. So he's dealing with that problem. And then you can understand what he's saying, but to to glop all of Paul together into systematic theology doesn't work. Yeah, I like your I like that explanation. Um, you just shared that right there about as we read Paul, like understanding the circumstances for why he wrote certain things and to yeah. to better engage with the text. Um, now, what's interesting too is aside from you like studying and analyzing scripture, um, writing it down and and expressing it through through different books that you've written. You're also composing music. And I'm wondering, like, your process as you're thinking about um, turning some of these uh, stories into song, um, how you are, like, do you kind of think through the story and then write it down and then compose music? Or do you like to write music first and then? It happens all different ways. Mm. Um, Usually the, the, the one thing it's in common is you get some sort of little nugget that you get really excited about. You know, some, some, uh, I wrote a song years ago called God's Own Fool. And, um, I, and, and that came from Paul's, you know, talking about the foolishness of what we preach and that sort of thing. And, and I think, well, if, if the gospel is foolishness, then Jesus is God's own, then Jesus is a fool. And with that, mm. and that, that very defined, mm. of course, the Bible says, don't call your brother a fool. And I've had, had <laughs> hundreds of letters from people who, <laughs> You know, calling Jesus a fool and that, oh course, boy. that's not what I was, you know, that's not what I was saying. <laughs> I don't understand, I don't know, metaphors or whatever. And it was a risky, it was a risky song to write. Hmm. Right. Uh, but, um, 
that but that was the nugget of an idea that I thought that's a really cool idea and I want to I want to communicate that and then you you become willing to you know a pastor is willing to reduce it to a 30 minute sermon mm. and I have to reduce it to a 3 minute song which is mm. I mean, a whole different discipline yeah i mean I like you use the word risky because I feel like whenever someone is writing about the Bible or expressing it in song, giving some interpretation, like you're opening yourself up to judgment, criticism. What did you mean by this word? And so and I I know just from talking to you and also just from um, studying some of your songs, like how thoughtful you are with every word You're, you're, you're thinking through how you want to share something, how you want to express something especially in your latest book, like how, how do you kind of like deal with that? Um, I guess the weight of scripture, like taking, taking these, uh, taking scripture and now um, helping to explain it to others. Cause it's a very, it's a very weighty task and there, there's going to be a lot of judgment there. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I see it. I mean, I'm not disagreeing with you. I think you're right. Uh, but I don't know if I if I approach it that way because if you did, that you know could probably tend to shut down your creativity. If you realize, you know, uh, this is what I'm handling. You know, it's dynamite or it's you know it's it's uh, it's new it's fissionable material or something like that. You know, uh, I, I think I think w- what motivates me in the process is I get excited about an idea and think what well, people really need to hear this and. Um, and and consequently, there's no greater encouragement than when somebody gets it and you go, oh, you know, all oh, that, you know, my wife says I'm an affirmation junkie and I never get enough affirmation. And, that, and she's right. <laughs> I am an affirmation. Junkie. But uh, that's that's the kind of affirmation that really means a lot to me is to mm. see people see people get it. And um, and I think, too, you know, always again, thinking back to the life of Jesus, that's um that's an experience I don't know if he ever got. I mean, I don't know if anybody ever really got it. Or if he, you know, um, at least in the Gospels, basically, especially um, John, the story is basically no one gets it. And there's that place where Jesus says to the disciples, I think it's Caesarea Philippi, oh, you believe at last? And no one knows to translate that as he is asserting it or he's asking the question when nobody really knows. But uh, I think... I think they're occasionally like the, the the centurion who asks for what he doesn't deserve. And Jesus is amazed by that. I think that's a rare moment when someone kind of gets it and he's amazed by that. But 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 what I enjoy, what I've enjoyed for all these years of, of hearing back from people and seeing people who really get it and light up. Of course, they have the Holy Spirit that helps them understand that Jesus didn't have, you know, the spirit hadn't come in that sense. I mean, he breathed on, on the disciples and gave them sort of a, I don't know, early, early endowment of the spirit. I don't know how to say it, but, um, but basically what I'm trying to say is I, I've had the privilege of seeing people get things and understand things. And I don't know if Jesus, well, I know that he rarely got that, got the, got to have that experience. Do you have a favorite gospel? It changes. I have a I have a consistent least favorite gospel. That's Matthew. <laughs> why, why is Matthew always at the uh, bottom of your list? <laughs> well, I just don't hear a voice in Matthew the way I do. I mean, I know I know what Matthew's trying to do, and I know I have a pretty good idea of his audience, and that helps. 
But what you what you have basically in Matthew is a collection of five big blocks of the sayings of Jesus. And uh, I'm not a very good listener. Jesus talks for like two two and a half hours in Matthew. I'm not a very good listener. I mean, they're all perfect and they're all God's word and and they're all present Jesus in a slightly different way. I guess I like Mark because Jesus is is so emotional. That's really the emotional life of Jesus and Mark. But my two favorites, the the one that vie for you know attention, are are John and Luke for different reasons. John is just elegant. I mean, if you think you realize that John is a is a hundred years old when he writes, or almost a hundred years old, and he's been preaching and teaching this material for fifty or sixty years. No wonder it comes together the way it does. I mean, it's just you know, and uh, and Luke, you know, think about what Luke went through to write his gospel he talked because the witnesses by the time luke writes the the witnesses are getting pretty thin on the ground they're dying out and luke is writing to people 30 years later who had seen jesus who actually had seen him and they're telling him stories that they've thought about and told over and over again for all these decades and their consistent testimony is that they're amazed I called Luke is the gospel of amazement. He wears that word out. Mm. Um, and I think that's one of the things I really love about Luke. I mean, you look at the nativity in Luke. If you read it, read it between the lines, you realize that his source was Mary. And the, the, oh. the, the nativity in the gospel of Luke is, is Mary telling her story. Oh, so how cool is that? Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, I love that. Well, we we believe that Luke wrote Luke in Ephesus, and we know that John is in Ephesus with Mary. Mary lived with John until she died in Ephesus, and so there's the the, the evidence. Hmm. Which you can't be dogmatic about it, but my academic reason for believing is I really think it's a cool idea. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think I think there's really good evidence for the fact that Luke's eyewitness is Mary. He, Mary is thinking and feeling. She took things and pondered them. And when she when he tells the story of Jesus, twelve years old, Mary does all the talking, and only Mary would own that story. Joseph is gone, as far as we know. Right, right. Oh, was that? I love that, and I love I love how you have. It's like the cool factor. I love that too. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, how, how about this? Uh, Luke Luke's uh, account of the crucifixion it has the most details in it, and uh, I'm. Again, I'm convinced because I have a cool idea, but I think he spoke to the soldier who crucified Jesus. Uh, in John, there's this, notice this odd little parenthetical statement in the margin, sign off of, yeah, the person that I got this information from was there and really knew it. It's, it's an odd. It's, there's, no, there's no statement like it anyplace else in the gospel. The person who saw it knows that it's true. He testifies to what he's, you know, that verse is really weird little verse. And um, I think I think that soldier was part of John's community and Luke talked to him. Now, that's that's speculation built on speculation. And I, you know, I confess that. But, yeah. you know, ask yourself, how could Luke it's, know so many details of the crucifixion? Right. Totally. He spoke. To, he spoke to an eyewitness. And what and there is a very old tradition in the church that and they even know his name i can't remember what it was but that that's one of those soldiers became a follower of jesus makes mm. sense do you uh before we go i want to ask you like do you have any recommendations for like commentaries or 
Bible tools that are helpful to get background information? Oh, I don't know. There's there's so many good ones. In general, it, there's not a set. You know, it's like the the New International Commentary to Mark, which is my mentor's commentary, Bill Lane's commentary. John Stott said it's one of the greatest. It's, it's the greatest commentary that was ever written. But I I think what I tell. In fact, I just had a meeting with a young man this morning who uh, he's a just about to get married and he's like he's 22 or 23 years old and he he said he's he's the son of a drummer who worked for me for years and years i remember when he was born oh and he wow. basically sits down at a coffee shop with me and says i want to learn help me help me learn how to read the bible and i said well let's start with the gospels i hope you with the gospels this is what i told him i said pick pick one book say to yourself i'm going to make that book my own okay Pick that, pick one book, make that book, and uh, and and he's gonna he's gonna look at the gospels. He thinks he wants to do do Mark, but uh, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna learn how to read and engage with the Bible by making this one book my book, mm-hmm. and uh, I think that's a great way to start. I think it's also good to, to use different translations. If you routinely, I'm an NIV person. I think in NIV. And then there's nothing wrong with that. NIV is a fine translation. But um, I think the CSB, the new Christian Standard Bible, is a great new translation, a lot of new, based on a lot of new manuscripts and that sort of thing. Uh, it's good to use a fresh translation when you don't know what it's going to say. We talked about that. But I, I do think it's a little bit dangerous to base it on a commentary because then you what you tend to do is accept the suppositions and the conclusions of that writer and i think the best thing to do is just take the bare text be able to back my work who is mark who is john what's the life situation what's the structure and then you go at it on your own I and, and I, the best way yeah i love that and i also love that like as you're mentoring this young man like having dialogue with someone about scripture to bounce ideas off of, yes. to discuss. Like that was yeah. the intention. Like we're not alone with this. Right, right, you're not, right, you're not. And and I'm here for you if you, you know, if you got a question, not that I presume that I could ever answer it, but I can help you. I mean, I know where to go and look. Well, I can do that kind of thing. Well, Michael, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for writing this brand new book. I'm excited to share this out, promote it. So thank you so much. Well, I appreciate, you know, again, you're doing more for me than I'm doing for you. I, re- I appreciate the encouragement. appreciate you doing this for me. So I appreciate it, Mark. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation with Michael Card about ways to better understand the Gospels and his new book, The Nazarene, 40 Devotions on a Lyrical Life of Jesus. It's a beautiful guide to help connect our hearts and minds to the life and teachings of Jesus through poetry, song, and theological readings. I recorded this conversation with Michael back in December, which inspired me to set goals to slowly read through the Gospels in this new year. So I'm actually reading through the Gospel of John right now, and then I'll be hitting up Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. So today's conversation leads us to this episode's question. Michael talked with us about the importance of taking time to listen to scripture, and that means slowing down and not skipping ahead simply because we know how a particular parable or story is going to end. He talked about how meditating on scripture and using our imagination can help connect the words to our hearts and minds. So has this conversation inspired you to slow down with scripture, to meditate in the gospels more? Let me know by messaging me on Instagram, TikTok, or Twitter at Delgado Podcast. 
Next time, we're chatting with Dr. Alistair E. McGrath about the life and faith of his mentor, colleague, and friend, J.I. Packer, who passed away on July 17th. So that's next time. And if you found this podcast helpful in any way, please let me know by rating the show on iTunes and or leaving a comment. Your vote can help this show get more visibility. Thank you so much. Take care, and we'll chat more next time.